This is About UNX, and this is The Candid Frame. In 1938, Columbia Records' first art director, Alex Steinweiss, came up with the idea of using cover art for the company's album covers. First, they used illustrations and classic paintings, but that was soon replaced with photographs. Thus began an inseparable relationship between photography and music. Beyond being a marketing tool to sell records and CDs, photography documented the history of music and its evolution in pop culture, from classical to jazz, from rock to hip-hop. Photographers like Brian Cross, also known as B+, became an important part of documenting the history of music and culture. His focus on the early years of L.A. hip-hop made him a chronicler of a music genre that was often associated with just the East Coast. His images captured how L.A. artists were using hip-hop for more than simply making people dance, but to challenge the status quo, whether it was about economic disparity or police violence. Though the artist-born photographer loved the music and had casually documented hip-hop concerts and events, it took a little push from his mentor, Mike Davis, the author of the seminal book on L.A. history, Mike Davis, for Brian to finally completely invest himself in the project. Even before City of Quartz had come out, Mike had challenged me that previous summer to you know, stop making photographs in the San Fernando Valley that are too clever and go make photographs of hip hop. That's the thing that's, you know, most compelling for you. Why aren't you photographing it? And I honestly, you know, I honestly thought, I'm sure there's plenty of people photographing it already. It's not like, you know, I mean, well, it turns out that there wasn't really, I mean, there wasn't really that many people recording it in the way that a lot of sort of popular culture stuff as it emerges. um, I mean, it's different now, but in those days, um, you know, there wasn't too many people around with cameras. There wasn't too many people really that had access to those kinds of resources. And so I just, yeah, I started going to the good life, basically. I mean, I met the Freestyle Fellowship. I met the Watts Prophets. Um, I started meeting people in Leimert Park and uh, started making work. And, of course, the following April, the city burns down. I just had my thesis show. <laughs> um and then suddenly, there was all this interest. The Los Angeles riots that occurred soon after created a huge interest in Los Angeles, which now included Brian's photographs of an emerging music scene. It launched his career and provided him the opportunity to photograph hundreds of artists, including Mos Def, RZA, Yusuf Latif, Easy e Q-Tip, and Damien Marley, just to name a few. Though he eventually came to enjoy both critical and financial success, there was a time when he struggled to find satisfaction in his work. This led to a decision to shift his creative focus in order to remain true to himself. In that period, I was certainly, I, I, I think, I don't remember what year particularly it was, was it 95, 96, but I had made more money than I had ever made in my life. But I was the least satisfied with what I was doing. Um, like of all the years previously and so it was definitely a decision that 
I don't know. In the end, I mean, it's, it might sound naive or whatever, but I, but I generally, you know, I'm not a careerist like that. I'm, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't really make decisions uh, based on what I think in the end, what I think the, the market wants. I'm, I'm really interested in a sort of larger thing. And, and I just, and I think it's important actually to, to note this, but I, but I think if you do like the kind of work that you feel is important, and if you do it for, if you're able to sustain it for long enough, the market will find its way. I mean, it's, it does. Um, if there's quality there in the work, they'll find their way to you. We'll talk to Brian about how that decision created a dramatic shift in his career and what similarities he observed between the lives of young artists of Watts and Compton and his own upbringing in Ireland during the violent period known as the Troubles. Welcome to The Candid Frame. Well, first off, just let me welcome you to the show. It's, it's a real pleasure to have you. I was I have to I have to admit that I, I wasn't really familiar with your name associated with your work. I had seen your work, but I'd never made the connection between you and the photographs. So as I started digging deeper and deeper, I was like, oh, I know this picture, I know this picture. And I was like, Oh, okay, so this is this is the guy. <laughs> so um I'm glad to I'm glad glad to have a chance to to talk with you because you know, the the more I researched you the more I, I appreciated the work that you've done over the over the last couple of decades. So, so welcome. I'm glad to have you. Thank you very much. I'll take that as a fail on my uh, <laughs> on my marketing machine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, we were just before we started recording, we were talking about this this idea that when we first start off as photographers, trying at least trying to make a living as a photographer, one of the struggles is trying to figure out what what the market wants and needs. And we often make the choice of, you know, trying to shape ourselves into what we think the market wants to, to buy. You may get your foot in the door, you may get a start a career at that point, but it's hard to sustain a, a lifelong career chasing the trends. And that inevitably for anyone to have a a lengthy career, at some point they have to sort of give up on that idea and be true to who they are. Uh, not as a person, as a photographer, as a business person. And I wanted to start there about the moment where you realized that you couldn't keep chasing the dragon and you really had to make a different choice in order to satisfy both your creativity and in order to you know, make a choice that allowed you to really enjoy what you were doing. Yeah, I mean, I would even back it up even further. Like as, a, as an educator, I think a lot of times... What you'll notice when you meet students that are at the beginning, I think it's almost like when your photos look like somebody who you admire or you, you know, you've been shown, God forbid, you make something that looks like a Cartier-Bresson or whatever, or William Klein, it it allows you to kind of move on. And it's kind of, there is that kind of uh, sort of mimetic or imitatory thing that happens at first, but the market is terrible for this, really. I mean, the market kind of overdetermines and re- reproduces itself in this way. So, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I got out of CalArts in, in 92 um, with the bones of what became my first book, It's Not About a Salary. And I started to realize that, like, well, I, I used to work at Pan Pacific Camera on La Brea. And oh, I, I wow, lost man. my job. You're taking me yeah. way back. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> um, but... 
um, over, over that summer, I, l- I lost my job. And um, so then, I, you know, I, I started to actually get gigs and, and, and start to work a little bit. And so, you know, I was looking at the people around me at that time and what the kind of work that they were doing, the people that were working and decided like, you know, well, if you if, if you want to work, you know, you better do things that look like them. So, you know, the people that were working at that time was people like Mike Miller, Glenn Friedman. I mean, I guess Danny Clinch was starting mm-hmm. at that time. That was one of my favorite of, of your shows. That was one of my favorite ones or twos, actually. <laughs> but, I, I, you know, I was sort of paying attention to what people were doing and started to follow really, you know, it, it, it's okay. I mean, I, I made decisions, which I guess you could say I regret, but I mean, it's just, it, it's also a stamp of the time, you know, in terms of the kinds of film stocks that I was using and the lens choices I was making. I was primarily photographing hip hop, hip hop at that time, you know, Glenn Friedman was, was doing a lot of really important work for Def Jam at that time. And, uh, and Glenn was, Glenn was a skate photographer. So skate photography is sort of defined by really wide angle lenses. So wide angle lenses was like, I mean, exceptionally wide, like wider than 24 was kind of considered normal. So everybody was doing that kind of thing. But by like 95, as I started to work at, I started to work at rap pages and I started to see like a lot of different kinds of portfolios and, and think about things in different ways and think about like, start really thinking about like how I could bring the kinds of interests that I have in the medium into the gig, which is that, that was kind of, that's the challenge, I guess. I started to try to find ways that, that I could do things that made sense to me. And there, I mean, I, I remember that there's a moment, you know, um, where I had that sort of epiphany or whatever. It's around the time that I did the cover of DJ Shadow's first album, which is called Introducing. And I remember I shot Razkaz's first record cover that week as well. There was something about the cover of Introducing, the fact that it wasn't lit, except for like the green of uh, fluorescent tubes in a badly lit record store. And the fact that it was, it was like mundane somehow, it was like profoundly mundane. But it was well observed, but it wasn't like I, I wasn't trying too hard, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and there was something about the success of that and the success of that photograph that actually at the same time was the first time I started shooting the Fuji GA645. I don't know if you know that camera, oh, but yeah. it's like a one. point shoot medium format camera. But it, it was the kind of camera where I could throw it in my bag, you know, carry it with me all the time. And I could just pull it out and get like a six, four five frame. I was printing at the time as well. We had myself and my partner, Eric Coleman had built like a color dark room. And it was just something about that period. It's like a two or three year period there where like I figured out a kind of way of shooting. I remember I shot a lot for Ray Gun at that time. And I remember the, the photo editor at Ray Gun saying to me, you know, a portrait isn't just the face. It can be a detail. And I remember like, wow, nobody ever said that to me before. And, I, and that really was liberating. You know, it was like, you can actually photograph whatever you like. It'll still make an interesting editorial. And, you know, in that period, like these things sort of emerged out of the work. I mean, it came from shooting too, you know. I mean, I think that's the other thing is like a lot of this is about putting in hours, you know, like actually doing it, 
helps you to understand the kinds of things, the kinds of light, the kinds of lens choices that you are most interested in or whatever, you know. And then eventually people start pointing it out like, oh, that looks like one of your photographs. And, oh, snap. There's a, my photographs look like something. So, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, I don't know if that makes sense. No, that makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I think one of the things about making a market change in the way you, you shoot, it's one thing when you're sort of a student and you don't, and there aren't really any consequences for making such a choice. But, you know, by that time you had achieved a certain level of success, specifically financial success. So sometimes in making a choice to make such a shift has some real, some real world consequences, which can make <laughs> making, which makes making that kind of choice increase, incre- you know, more difficult. So, yes. so tell me about that consideration and, you know, how much resistance that created and what allowed you to, you know, go ahead and make that choice and commit to shooting in a, maybe not necessarily a, a, a different way, but in a way that was more fulfilling, satisfying? Yeah. I mean, actually, you're right. Like, I, I was doing fairly well at that time. I was working a lot. But I've always had this kind of sort of complicated relationship to that kind of success where I feel like the, I took home a certain amount of money. If I didn't get to do what I wanted to do, if I didn't get to make the kinds of images that I wanted to make or the kinds of images that I made that I was most happy with didn't end up being used, somehow it never feels as, of, of, of course, I'm, you know, snap, I'll, I'll, I'll go to the record store. I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll find a way to make it okay, you know, <laughs> but in that period, I was certainly, I, I, I think, I don't remember what year particularly it was, was it 95, 96, but I had made more money than I had ever made in my life. But I was the least satisfied with what I was doing, uh, like of all the years previously. And so it was definitely a decision that, I don't know, in the end, I mean, it's, it might sound naive or whatever, but I, but I generally, you know, I'm not a careerist like that. I'm, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't really make decisions based on what I think in the end, what I think the, the market wants. I'm, I'm really interested in a sort of larger thing. And, and I just, and I think it's important actually to, to note this, but I, but I think if you do the kind of work that you feel is important, and if you do it for, if you're able to sustain it for long enough, the market will find its way. I mean, it's, it does. If there's quality there in the work, they'll find their way to you. And that's what happened. I had a couple of quiet years where people didn't really understand. I just completely threw out my old portfolio and I used to send this notebook. Like I just would cut up proof sheets and I would just like make edits of what I thought the way my work should be used, um, where I would do like sequences of photographs. Like each, each job was like a little story. And I started to send that out. And of course, you can imagine like this is in the days when people had like those crazy expensive embossed leather bound yeah. in a box, you know, and I'm sending out some notebook with a bunch of Xeroxes and cut up proof sheets and handwritten stuff. And, but actually that was the first time I ever got an agent. It was a, a guy in New York really liked what I was doing. I was like, no, I can, you know, we can do things with this. You know, it was, it was a definite change, but it was also, it was also the first time where I started to get the kinds of gigs like outside of music, for example. Um, I started to get more gigs outside of music in, in 
apparel and advertising and this kind of thing. And I think it was people responding really to the, to the fact that it, it didn't look like anything else. You know, it had its own thing. It's, it's fine. I, I mean, I'm much happier as a result. But, you know, I, I mean, having seen a lot of photographers over the years, what I would say is that, you know, I call that feeding it, you know. It's like jazz musicians call it like woodshedding, you know. It's like just just go out there and figure it out for a minute. Don't Don't worry about what everybody else is thinking. Just go figure it out. And if you don't do that, I mean, it's, it's, it's no different than being an accountant or something, you know, where it's like al- you're that alienated. You're just performing a function which you have no proper connection to. With me, I'm very sensitive and I, I don't perform as well under those kinds of conditions, you know, where I feel like I'm being micromanaged and I have to do something really, really specific. And there's no chance for me to look around and discover and think. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I try to tell people this, but it's the, I think it's that was a very important period really for me. It might feel risky in retrospect, but it didn't feel risky at all in the moment because I, I didn't feel like even if it was a choice, I felt like it was something I had to do. Your, your career is largely associated with the, uh, with the early years of hip hop in Los Angeles. How, how did you get introduced to that world? Because if I understand correctly, Mike Davis, who is the author of uh, City of Quartz, one of those seminal books on the history of Los Angeles, was a friend and sort of a mentor. And it's something, he yeah. had some role to play in that. Tell us about that. I was at CalArts. I was at grad school at CalArts. I was uh, meant to, to call me a photographer at that period. might not have been the right way to describe what I was doing. But I was using photography. I was making kind of landscape photography, landscape photographs. I was thinking really about history. Since I had been, since the mid eighties, the only thing I was listening to was hip hop, but I, but I was, I mean, I was living in Ireland. I wasn't living here. So, you know, it was quite difficult to get the music at that time. There was no internet, obviously, but even on, in terms of like radio or whatever, like it was difficult to hear stuff. I mean, it was, it was difficult to hear hip hop in Los Angeles in 1985 also. But, and when I came to CalArts, I became friends with Mike. He was teaching there. He was kind of, we'll call it like workshopping city of courts really through his classes um, at CalArts through a number of discussions. And, and then this is a period of like NWA, you know, the first Ice Cube record. There was interesting things happening in Los Angeles, the film Colors, for example, Ice-T. Mike really didn't have the sensitivity to, to, to hear hip hop. And partially because his hearing, just physiologically, his hearing isn't great because he worked as a truck driver for many years. So his hearing is challenged. And so, you know, I kind of, I don't know, I was like an advocate, I guess. You know, I was just like one of these people that I was convinced. I mean, I, I'd come to the United States for the first time in 1988 and I lived in the Mission District in San Francisco for like five months you know, the end of the Reagan era, the Mission District in San Francisco is very different than it is now. You know, crack, AIDS, heroin, a lot of folks living on the street and no, nothing really in terms of cinema, in terms of contemporary art prepared me for that reality, except for hip hop. Hip hop spoke to that. It was of that, the kind of anxious, the sort of visceral feeling that you hear when you hear those early Dr. Dre or early Bomb Squad recordings, 
I felt like it was exactly speaking to what that experience was like. And it was a very compelling and scary sometimes experience. But as opposed to saving money for my final year in undergrad school, I came back with a suitcase of hip hop records. And, <laughs> you know, that was it. <laughs> you know, it's the beginning of the, you know, what, what becomes, you know, I mean, the, the Jungle Brothers, De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest is also coming out at that moment. But anyway, Mike wasn't really sensitive to that stuff. And when City of Quartz came out, it, obviously it's in, in the period, you know, the book comes out in November and then the following April, the city is burnt to the ground, basically. You know, there's a, a, a rebellion in the city in the, in the aftermath of the Rodney King verdicts. People just have had it um, with good reason. You know, and another one of those fantastical moments that you have here, the kind of sunshine and palm trees reality gets eclipsed for a moment. Mm -hmm. But I was already I was already working on it's not about a salary like Mike, even before City of Quartz had come out, Mike had challenged me that previous summer to, you know, stop making photographs in the San Fernando Valley that are too clever and go make photographs of hip hop. That's the thing that's, you know, most compelling for you why aren't you photographing it i honestly thought well, i'm sure there's plenty of people photographing it already it's not like you know i mean well it turns out that there wasn't really i mean there wasn't really that many people recording it in the way that a lot of sort of popular culture stuff as it emerges i mean it's different now but in those days there wasn't too many people around with cameras there wasn't too many people really that had access to those kinds of resources and so i just yeah i started going to the good life basically I mean, I met the Freestyle Fellowship. I met the Watts Prophets. Um, I started meeting people in Lamert Park and uh, started making work. And, of course, the following April, the city burns down. I just had my thesis show. <laughs> and then suddenly there was all this interest. And Mike, actually, we had, we had talked about doing a book for Verso prior to the riots, but Obviously, after the riot, suddenly there was, you know, everybody wanted to know about L.A. L.A. was suddenly this compelling story and was the kind of future city potentially in a dystopian way that everybody had been thinking all along. So after that, I, you know, I got out of grad school, I lost my job and I just decided that I would just try to continue, finish the book and make myself available, really. I mean, that was the first idea was that my practice should be a an integrated practice, which is that it needed to make sense of the community I was working in. So I basically made myself available. Anybody who had a demo, who took them, who took it seriously, I would make photos for them if they wanted. I wouldn't charge. But what was your what was your fascination with the with the music? Because you were you were, you were already invested in the music even before you began photographing it. What what yeah. fascinated you about it? I've always been sensitive to music. I mean, I guess that's kind of a silly thing to say, but from when I was as young as I can remember, like I was that kid that was always hanging out of the radio, always knew the name of the new pop thing or whatever. Punk rock obviously was a huge kind of cultural phenomenon in, uh, in my world in Ireland at the, the end of the seventies. It's from like 1976 on. And you know, hip hop was the the logical heir in my world there, you know, to that, even though it, it's not really what hip hop is something entirely different. 
I think it has an entirely different relationship to history. It has an entirely different relationship to the future. But music always drove me. I just never thought that, like, but I was always a visual person. And I never thought that those two worlds would come together or whatever. So, you know, I mean, in the same way as a lot of my politics was informed by listening to music from 1976 to like 1981 or 82 after 1982, a lot of, a lot of my politics, you know, like the first time I ever heard Malcolm X was on a record on a hip hop record with the beat behind him. I didn't know who he was. I I, I didn't grow up in a, I wasn't fortunate enough to grow up in a, in a culture where James Brown was part of my everyday experience or George Clinton or any other Aretha Franklin, you know, Mm -hmm. that was somewhere else. We had our music, but I didn't have a chance to hear that stuff. Mostly I heard that stuff through samples. You know, I, the first time I heard Roy Ayers was on a Tribe Called Quest record. The first time I ever heard James Brown. No, I heard James Brown on his own. But like Lynn Collins, for example, was on a Rob Bass and DJ Z Rock record. I didn't even know it was a sample. I thought they were making the music. <laughs> and, then I, and then I heard the Lynn Collins thing and I'm like, what? <laughs> so, um, and for me, I, so I understood it in a different way, I guess. But it was, it seemed completely compelling and completely present. You know, it didn't feel like something that was ending. Punk rock felt like something that was ending. Yeah. Whereas hip hop didn't. It felt like something that was emerging. You know, I mean, I mean, I was in art school when Basquiat was still alive. I remember the, the debates around whether it was a bad move, you know, going into the galleries the way he did. And, you know, like... It was part of our everyday experience. I didn't see Wild Style until later or Style Wars. But, you know, we, there was, we, we tried to follow it. And I was, yeah, I was like an advocate, you know. I, I honestly feel like, though, that part of what's exhilarating or exciting about the early moments of hip hop it is, is that it's, it's a challenge to its audience to actually, it's, it's not simply enough to just listen and consume the challenge is, is to actually contribute. Yeah. And that's something that goes back to like black arts and, you know, I mean, that's, that's a long tradition. So yeah, I was caught up from very, very quickly. <laughs> so one of the things that's sort of interesting about your, your, your story is that you grew up in Ireland during the time of what's called the, the troubles where there was this yeah. large political, ethno cultural conflict between uh, I, the people of Ireland, primarily Northern Ireland, and uh, the UK government. And as a result, there were sort of perpetual tensions uh, and yeah. moments of extreme violence. And, and I'm wondering how growing up in that during those times and the whole dynamic that it would create amongst people in the community how did that sort of give you a perspective into what was happening in South LA, Watts, Compton, in terms of those things that probably had some sort of similarities to what you had grown up with sure. back in Ireland? Yeah, I mean, this is this is it really, right? This is the core of it. I'll tell you a story, okay? The first week I was at CalArts, I... Uh, so I was, yeah. So I grew up in Ireland in a, in a, in a, in a, you're, you've described it pretty well. It was the height of the troubles, really, the 80s. 1981 is the hunger strikes, you know, where 12, 12 men sort of basically starved themselves to death in, a, in a, a prison. 
against their treatment by the British government. And it was, it was really, an, it felt like that everything got notched up as far as the level of violence, the level of kind of uh, polarization or whatever. And, you know, while, you know, just to be straightforward, in the South where I grew up, uh, there was this thing called Section 31 where you couldn't, you know, you, you couldn't be sympathetic to the IRA or Sinn Féin, which is the political wing of the IRA, and be on television. They wouldn't allow your voice to be heard. So, so actually, you know, there was the, the sort of mainstream dialogue that was going on, and then there were these voices that you couldn't hear. And so there was this, you know... But we also knew, of course, that this had all started with this thing called the civil rights movement in the North. And we knew that civil rights in the North had some relationship. We weren't quite sure, but had some relationship to what had happened in the United States in the 60s, which, of course, it did. But the thing that really, you know, when I came here, I mean, there was a number of things. There's a number of stories. I used to move furniture when I first came, you know, before I went to CalArts, I was a furniture mover. And uh, I remember once moving a guy in the lower hate. African-American man, and I, I picked up a box of books and I saw a France Fanon book on top, Wretched of the Earth. And I was like, oh, wow, you have France Fanon, Wretched of the Earth. That's dope. I'll read France Fanon here. And I'm, <laughs> I'm saying it being funny, but, and he was like, well, actually, you know, I'm a former Black Panther and that's one of our, you know, and I was like, really? Like completely oblivious, had read Fanon on my own, didn't realize it was an important book here. But the, really the thing that kind of the kind of punch in the face for me of this whole thing was I remember going to CalArts the first week and my roommate had bought the LA Times and we were reading the paper together in the cafeteria and we had opened a spread. And on one side of the page was a young uh, Chicano kid leaning against a, a fence and the story of gang injunctions. So gang injunctions are basically like uh, guilt by association. If they... If they paper that says, we believe you are a member of X street gang. Therefore you are, and then your, your, your ability to use public space, your ability to congregate, your ability to communicate was curtailed and you can be given a ticket for it. Then it was a new kind of law that the LAPD had introduced, which has subsequently gone on to, it's kind of evolved, but across the page and, and following a perfect Line, you know, somebody at the Times was obviously paying attention, was a LAPD cop with a firing a rubber bullet. And it was it was saying that they that the the LAPD had just bought guns that fired what they call them is a non-lethal. I forget what the word is, but basically they're pieces of hard plastic or rubber that are fired out of a gun um, that supposedly won't kill you. But it's what the British Army had used in the north. And which we, which I had protested against in Dublin, because they, the British Army would fire them point blank, and you know if they, if you fired at an elderly or at a child, like they could, they, they had blinded kids with them, and you know they weren't, you know, as the notion was, it's a baton round, is what they would call it, but but the idea of a baton round is that it's it's the equivalent of hitting you with a baton, but it's from like thirty feet or 40 feet. But the idea is that for it to work, you have to bounce it off the ground. Like you can't just fire it direct. And these, and the British army were firing them direct, like, you know, a few feet away. And to me, it was kind of like all the sort of lessons of sort of solidarity politics, you know, which, you know, some of the most, some of the strongest uh, protests against 
apartheid in South Africa, for example, happened in Ireland. You know, there was a supermarket chain called Dunn's where the workers refused to handle South African goods and basically shut down this supermarket chain for a while. Anyways, it would seem very clear to me from the beginning if the LAPD can be in contact with the RUC in Northern Ireland to buy baton rounds and, and understand what's the best way to deal with a bunch of virate protesters. Like, I thought, like, well, then why aren't the kids and these things are going to be used against talking to the kids in Northern Ireland to find out the best way to get around it? Hmm. And they're not. But then that's where that's why hip hop does somehow. <laughs> in some weird, indirect, crazy universe, hip hop does fulfill some of that function. You know, there's it, it has operated as a kind of uh, covert uh, other kind of code for understanding social conditions or means of resistance or whatever. One of the things I often hear from listeners of the show is their appreciation for the depth of conversations that we have. It's really gratifying to hear that the amount of research that I put into each interview is appreciated. Besides the time spent recording and editing each episode, there is a lot of time finding out as much as I can about each guest in order to ensure that our conversations are not a Q&A filled with lazy questions and pat answers. But all that takes time, which is why I'm asking you to support the show by becoming one of a hundred new Patreon supporters. By contributing $5 or more a month, you free me to not have to dedicate time to writing a magazine article, which is how I've made my living for these many years. Every 100 supporters that I get, that's one less article that I have to write or consultation that I have to do. Each time you hear a show where the guest responds to one of my queries by saying, that's a good question, is because I had the time to dig deep. So even if the photographer has been interviewed dozens or even hundreds of times before, I work to provide you with a conversation that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. If you appreciate that about the show, you can help make it happen every week by becoming a Patreon supporter today and contributing as little as $5 a month. Help us to reach our goal and help make TCF the best that it can be. Thanks. What's interesting about your, um, your your photographs is that they're they're rooted in uh, a reality of the the culture, the lives, and the communities that these artists come from, and you know, oftentimes with hip, the, certain images of hip hop have been related to opulence. You know, they they go and film in some west side mansion that they've rented they rent the lamborghini <laughs> they get all the girls wearing barely anything creating this sort of myth of success and wealth that has no reflection in the day-to-day lives of of the people who created the music but yours is completely antithetical to to that which i i really love and and, and appreciate and I, I want you to talk a little about the image of hip hop, especially with the choices you made in terms of how you chose to photograph these artists then and now. Yeah. I, I mean, okay. Obviously there's a 
a particular moment really when that kind of fully emerges. I mean, I think there's always been the display of wealth uh, going right back to the beginning, whether it be like, you know, Dookie Ropes or Dapper Dan, you know, at the time, fake Gucci. Now he's doing real (laughs) Gucci. You know, there's always been this kind of interrogation or interesting kind of relationship with wealth and opulence that has existed. And, but, but I think, you know, it was always something, there's always been something compelling there until it gets to the moment where, and it's, it is, it's the, you know, I mean, the word is jiggy. I mean, it comes from primarily it's, we're talking about Sean Puff Daddy Combs in that era really is where the wall between mass marketing and hip hop breaks down and it becomes something different. You know, it becomes like, oh, in fact, we can rap about your product. In fact, if you help us make this video and we'll, you know. And so the wall between kind of like product placement and advertising and the music disappears and then it becomes something different. For me, it, I, I don't come from that. I, I have actually very little interest in that. I, I know rich people stuff is good. <laughs> <laughs> it's not something that I've ever really aspired to or whatever. I, I, I'm, I'm not that interested in what old ladies in Europe wear, actually, you know. I'm, <laughs> I'm European, yes. Elderly, rich people in Paris, what they wear or what kind of handbags they have is not that interesting to me. And, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, like anybody else, I, you know, I can appreciate quality, but I, I, you know, brands and brand culture and branding culture to me is not that interesting. I mean, I... I've done my share of advertising campaigns for sure. I'll take the check, but it's not really at the center of what I do or what I think about. At the same time, I think, you know, I mean, there's a cliche of going the other way too, where it's like you live in a perfectly okay neighborhood and then we're going to a house that's burnt down to make your photographs. And it can be, you know, you can go the wrong, you can go the wrong way the other way too. But for me, I tried to, you know, in that period in, in around 97, I, kind of had some realizations about like, I mean, I think commercial photography in that period was very overproduced. It was the period of the kind of what they called like the, the overdose fashion spreads, you know, where everyone looked like they had just been strung out on heroin and hadn't had a good meal in a month and everything was kind of looked deathly, you know, like uh, it was that period where everybody looked too pale and kind of deathly. And I was, I remember reading about uh, Lars Van Triers and the, the Dogma group and they had this, they had these kind of, they call them the commandments of like, if you wanted to make a film for dogma, you had to like follow these rules. And the rules were like, you know, like there couldn't be non-diegetic sound. There had the lights that were lighting the the shot had to be lights that were practicals. Like they had to be within the frame or whatever you had to understand. And for me, I kind of thought like, well, you know, we, we could have rules too. Like, and around that period is where I started Mochilla. I mean, that was, that was, in the end, we ended up with one rule, which is if the equipment fits in the backpack, we'll shoot it. So the light, you get into this kind of thinking like, you know what? The light that's there is actually the perfect light. You don't need to bring in HDMIs and pro photos and five packs and 20 heads. and Whatever's there, actually, you can, if you can photograph it, that's what's supposed to be there. That's, that's the most beautiful light. It's up to you. You can make a beautiful photograph of it, you know, just find a way to do it. And it was very liberating actually. And magnificently enough, I was able to sustain a career without having to, 
I was never the right guy to photograph that stuff then. Hmm. I wasn't the shopping guy. I wasn't the photographer you could call and I would go off and find the right jeweler who would have the perfect piece made for you or I knew where to get the right watches or I didn't have some hookup with mansions on the west side or the right car rental company yeah. so you could, you know, like I was never, that was always somebody else. So, you know, it's fine. I mean, like I say, like if you, if you do do something well, there's a place for you. You know, there's a place in this for you. I would say the other thing is that I, like in that period was like, that was the first time I went to Cuba also in that period. And it was the first time where I started to think about like hip hop as not just a necessarily at that moment, national kind of cultural phenomenon or cultural language or set of tools, but, but as something that at that moment particularly was, having a kind of extraordinary growth in the diaspora at large. So places like, you know, Brazil, Cuba, like the Caribbean part of England, the Caribbean itself, obviously, as the kind of root of it. And so I started to think of, you know, as somebody from overseas already, I was already starting to be like, wow, you know, there's kind of interesting hip hop starting to happen in Mexico. What's that about, you know? And start to think about like how, what a map might look like really, you know, if you were to start thinking about it. So, it, yeah, I didn't, you know, it, yeah. I mean, if you look at ghost notes, it's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of key figures that aren't, that are missing, I guess you yeah, could say. It's, it's not that kind of a thing, Yeah, because you know? ghost notes, even though there is a good number of images of, of, of hip-hop artists in there, you really sort of blend uh, an awareness of what music means to different people in different cultures. Mm-hmm. And that's really sort of fascinating. It's not just a retrospective of, you know, portraits, you know, it really is sort of an exploration, a personal exploration of what music means to people beyond the marketing, beyond, you know, all the hype that we're inundated with all the time. Um, but, but tell us about ghost notes. What, what does that mean? Ghost notes is a term used by drummers to describe, it's really the way your body interacts with the drum kit but not in the intentioned way. In other words, you intend to hit the snare and there to be a sound. But in between doing that and doing something else, maybe the stick, just because of the way your body moves, touches the snare another time. Or your foot, when you hit the kick, rattles it. Or It's, it's all those extra little ghosts that exist in the rhythm. And... It, it describes two things for me. One is that it's the ghost of all the other players, basically. A drum kit is a piece of automation. You know what I mean? Prior to really the 20s, the beginning of the jazz era, is when a, the, drum, the drum kits, I mean, there's drum kits in the 19th century, but, but it really gets kind of figured out in the, you know, in the early 20th century. And it was to allow one person to do something that up until that point maybe six people did or five people did where like there was just one person doing the hi-hat or there's one person doing the snare. Or there's one person doing the kick. Um, so it's, it's a ghost of all the, the guys or women that are missing. And on another level, it's, it's the way somehow that history works, which is that when you listen to something that's rhythmic, you, it's like you're remembering in the future, like you, you're remembering that there's supposed to be a hit now. Your body is remembering. It's not even you're thinking about it. You're remembering that's how rhythm works. Like you, we know there's a hit coming. We remembered that it's supposed to happen. 
And in between that is these, they're like little flavorful things that make it, you know, make it syncopated, make it polyrhythmic, make us feel it. And to me, it's aspirational, but, you know, if I could make photographs that were as good as Tony Allen's ghosts or Clyde Stubblefield's ghosts or Bernard Purdy's ghosts or Elvin Jones ghosts, I've, I've really done something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I've really, <laughs> that's, that's what, that's what this should be. You know, it's that, that's the way I imagine this kind of a practice. Cause I'm more interested in photographing Shuggy Otis than I'm interested in photographing Michael Jackson for, for a lot of people. That's not everybody. Yeah. Like, and, and, and Shuggy is, I mean, Shuggy is such a compelling and wonderful and incredible musician. I've, I've listened to Shuggy Otis more than I've listened to Michael Jackson. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the, the cats that maybe didn't get the kind of shine, the places where the light didn't find its way. And yeah, that's, that's it. You know, you were sort of jacked into a whole community before it exploded in, in terms of awareness of popular culture. And so you're hanging out with all these people who are always sort of turning you on to, you know, these voices that few people know about, except within a really small circle. You know, but now you're a successful photographer, you're, you know, you're working with a lot of big labels, a lot of big performers, and there's a lot of stuff that's always happening beneath the surface that, you know, it's not as easily accessible, not just because you're because you're you know you're you're running a business at that point but you're also not 20 anymore right <laughs> so, so in terms of you know trying to stay jacked in especially into a music culture that is constantly evolving and transforming what do you consciously have to do to make sure that you're still tapped in in some way you got to stay open i mean uh, as, as silly as that sounds, you just have to trust that the body, the ears, that the intuition that's gotten you to hear, you know, I, it's, you can't have anxiety about the things that aren't, you aren't listening to, which is infinite. So you just have to trust that the things you're supposed to hear are the things that are coming across in front of you and stay active in the community, really. You know, when you find things and you think of people... I'm not a good gift giver, you know, like, but if I find something that I think, hey, you know, I think he'd appreciate that. I'm the type of person that'll, yeah, bing, there's the link. Mm. And so, yeah, you, you stay active in that way, but it's infinite. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know, like, I'm lucky. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense of like, I come from a culture of digging which there's always been diggers, you know, that's, I mean, how did, how did all these English kids figure out about the blues? Because they were digging records. I mean, they, you know, there's this great uh, documentary called Blues Britannica. And there's this Keith Richards telling this story about taking three buses from one side of London to the other to go to this guy's house, to knock on the door, to ask the guy if he really had this 78. And the guy to tell him he does and invite him in and have a cup of tea and then to listen to it to get back and take three buses to go home mm. because it was that important. You know I mean? I come from that era, like where it's like, yeah, I've, I've driven 12 hours to buy a record, you know, not because it was, I was doing some kind of speculative thing where I was trying to flip it on eBay or some, you know, 
just so I could hear it. And so you know, the kind of skills and sensitivity that you build up from years of doing that kind of thing and thinking about those kinds of things allows you to, yeah. I mean, I, the other thing is that after a while, like you create the culture too, you know? I mean, I, I feel like, I mean, timeless is about that. Keeping time is about that. Brazilian time is about that. Mochilla to some degree is about that, which is that like, we're fortunate enough to have moved into a position to where we're not just documenting it, but we, we create it to some degree too, you know, like we're, you know, we, we, we can, we make, we've made contributions to this now. So. A few, yeah. um, I think about a couple of months ago, I interviewed Guy Webster, um, who is one of the legendary photographers of music from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Yep. And, um, you know, that whole idea of experiencing music by the images, you know, the record covers, was such a big part of listening to music for me. And, you know, totally. your, your, your images, you know, not only have graced the, the covers of, of various albums, but, you know, have been really associated with the images of these artists, but also in terms of the history of that, you know, of that period. How does, in retrospect, how does that color the way that you look at your own work? I mean, that's very flattering, obviously. But, uh, I mean, a big part of the way that Ghost Notes is sequenced, for example, it's meant to leave you feeling the same way as what it's like to look through a well-curated crate of records, you know, where it's like, mm. you're like, oh, okay, this is this is serious, you know. That This is somebody who's... And so... It's the same for me, you know. I mean, a big part of digging is that, you know. Like, you have to work your way through, like, copious amounts of shitty records that you could care less about to find the record that is the one that you didn't realize you needed. But <laughs> at the price, you definitely didn't need it. But, yeah, it's nice. I mean, you know, the, there was something, there's something very gratifying about having done a record for Blue Note, for example as somebody, a, a long-term, and obviously Blue Note is a very obvious one, label, you know, to, to be able to say that, for me to be able to say that, uh, yeah, I've done record covers for Blue Note, and then when Blue Note did their, like, 50th anniversary or 75-year anniversary book, you know, to have a few pages of my images in there was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's... I don't spend that much time thinking about this kind of stuff, to be honest, but it's nice, you know. It's not, I mean, I, I wish I could, you know, attenuate that feeling and carry it with me every day. But it is a pleasured life, really. I mean, to, to, to appreciate something for that many years and to end up being able to do it is a kind of a, is a spectacular. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a great thing. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? <laughs> I mean, there's about five names <laughs> came to mind almost straight away. But somebody that I think if you haven't had a conversation with him, and for me, he's one of the greatest living American photographers, and he's somebody I'd be absolutely delighted to introduce you to or whatever is Jamel Shabazz. Oh, yeah, I know Jamel, yeah. Yeah, I think Jamel is, I think Jamel is one of the greatest, one of the greatest living photographers. And I think his commitment 
to the community that he lives in and the community that he comes out of. I, I mean, I wrote something about him maybe six or seven years ago. And I, it, the scale of what he's done, I, I, the only photographer I can think of that's done anything on that scale is like August Sonder. But, you know, you could, you could say when this is all over and done with, when we look at Jamel's archive, that the, that is a document of the African-American people. You know, he's really, it's absolutely, I'm, I'm humbled. I mean, I, you know, when I'm in the room with Jamel Shabazz, I, I, I'd be embarrassed nearly to say I'm a photographer. When you look at the level of commitment that he has. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's an amazing. You know, and we're friends, you know, we, we, he loves me. I love him. It's all good, but he's really, wow. He's really. Whew. Well, that's an so. awesome recommendation. And thank you so much for joining me. I really, I had really enjoyed having that chance to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you, man. Thanks to Brian for spending time with us. You can find out more about him and his work by visiting B Plus Photography and Mochilla.com. And I've also recently released two books. The first is an ebook, Lessons from the Street. It's about some of the mistakes that I've made as a photographer and how they made me a better photographer. It's just $7 and you can purchase it directly from the website. And my follow-up to my first book, Chasing the Light, is now available for purchase. It's called Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, and teaches you how to create better photographs more consistently. I believe that it's a book that will change not only the way you make photographs, but also the way you see. You can order and download the ebook right now, or place a pre-order for the softcover, which comes out in December. When you place your order from the Rocky Nook website, use the promo code PORELLO40 to receive 40% off the list price. Check out the website and the show notes for the link. And once you read it, please write a review in the Amazon store, whether or not you purchased it from there. It's going to help me to spread the word. And if you want to keep up with all things Candid Frame, sign up for our mailing list, and you'll receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks. We also love the reviews people write about us in the iTunes store because that helps to spread the word. Thanks to Rafael De La Uz from the U.S. for his five-star review. And as I said earlier, you can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can make a one-time contribution via PayPal. You'll find links for both in the show notes and the website. Thanks to Mike Avery, Gerald T. Carney, Hubert Thompson, John Dilworth, and Simeon, for their recent contributions. I can't thank you enough. And if you want to easily access every episode of The Candid Frame, download the free Candid Frame app. It's available for both Apple iOS and Android. Download it today. You'll find it where everything else is, in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at Ibarian X. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. <laughs>